come with us. When you wish upon a star. Come and remember the magic. What's up, all you rad dudes and dudettes? Welcome to 90s Dizzy, your one-stop shop for everything about Disney in the 90s. I am your host, AJ Minotti, joined by my brothers, Mike Minotti. Hello. And Chris Minotti. Hey, howdy, hey. There it is. I said the one-stop shop, and I stopped saying that, and I just kind of came out. One-stop shop. You said that before? Yeah, yeah in the beginning, <laughs> then I just started saying Guess I never pay attention. <laughs> yeah, you guys just don't... I never actually listen to this. don't listen to the intro when I do it. You just... Jump in. We're so yes. nervous about our introductions, AJ. We're mentally preparing. Yes, yes, clearly. We're preparing, preparing. Why are you always preparing? Just, just go. go. Just go. <laughs> just go. So we are here this month to talk about a very special film. Ooh. Michael, you seem to enjoy this film particularly well because pretty much in any room of your house, <laughs> there is memorabilia from this film present. There is. This is The Rocketeer, one of my favorite movies almost certainly my favorite live-action Disney movie, but it's it's a top-five favorite movie of all time in general. I adore this movie. I came to it pretty late, not until my teenage years, really. I think a lot of people didn't discover it until DVD, honestly. But Yeah, sure. Yeah, but this film is uh, going to be celebrating its 30th anniversary next month, years. actually. So I, I, yeah, this film is really close to my heart. I really wanted to do something special for this. I've been thinking about doing this episode for a long time, and I always hesitated because I really wanted to do it upright, and I think this is going to be good. We have a, a special interview later that I think uh, people are going to really enjoy if they like this movie, and we're going to do our typical deep dive into the film, and we'll talk about what we think about it and some of the theme park artifacts. Ooh. This is I, this is going to be fun. I'm excited. Yeah, me too. All right, well, let's do it, Mike. Take me back to June of 1991. June 22nd, 1991 is when... This movie premiere, but it was an eventful month. On June 6th, Jay Leno announced to replace Johnny Carson as host of The Tonight Show. Ooh, that's the start of a lot of wars. Yeah. Well, well Car- Carson wanted uh, Letterman. Letterman. I read a whole book about this, uh, The Late Shift. A very interesting yes, book. Yes. June 12th, the Chicago Bulls with Michael Jordan beat the LA Lakers in the NBA Finals. This is the first of three straight title wins for them. Also, this is our 23rd episode, which, you know. Well, look at that. Whoa. Michael Jordan, 23, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, June June uh, 18th, Everything I Do, I Do It For You by Brian Adams debuts. Everyone knows this song, right? It immediately comes into your head. Okay, stop. June 19th, Colombian drug lord Pablo Escobar surrendered to the police. Isn't that nice? We got him. That's great. So, I wonder if he would have fought the Nazis too. (laughs) (laughs) It would have awkwardly looked over. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, Rocketeer, before it was a movie, it was a comic by artist Dave Stevens. Now, Stevens started in the 70s by inking Tarzan newspaper strips and graphic novels with famed cartoonist Russ Manning. 
Uh, he would also work with Ran Manning on the Star Wars newspaper comic strips that debuted after that movie became a hit. Those are uh, interesting if you've ever gone back and read some of them. I have not so much. Is that where my shirt comes from? No, that was the, the newspaper, I mean, the, the actual comic. Yeah. I had that shirt I bought at Target with a comic cover, which was, it was like Luke Skywalker being like, Look out, Chewbacca, we're being attacked by the Death Star. And this is Han Solo like, it's too late, kid, we're finished. I loved the fatalism <laughs> of Han Solo. Yeah, we're done. Yeah, uh, why even bother? So um, after that, he, he did some storyboard work for Hanna-Barbera cartoons like Super Friends and the Godzilla Power Hour. So only Ooh, the best stuff. Mm -hmm. And then he would do storyboard work for Raiders of the Lost Ark and Michael Jackson's Thriller music oh, video. Yeah, All so right. some, some, some big hits here. But then in 1982, he creates The Rocketeer, a comic about an out-of-his-luck pilot named Cliff Secord taking place in the late 1930s, and he discovers a jetpack. And the comic was really inspired by Stephen's love of the golden age of comics, which started in the, in the late 30s, and specifically on the kind of pulp heroes of that era, like Doc Savage and The Shadow. And if you look at that style, you, you totally recognize it. I was say, Cliff Secord is such a good name. It is, isn't it? It's, it it just great. sounds like a hero. It, a lot of times with these kinds of movies, you get those good names, you know? Right. Like Eddie Valen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it doesn't depend on the, like, super, like, uh, alliteration of a of a Clark Kent or a Peter Parker, right, but it right. still yeah, sounds still, good. It's got that good flow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Cliff has a girlfriend named Betty, which was directly based off of the 1950s pinup model Betty Page. Boopy doop. Yeah, not that's that's Betty Boop. I know. I just although <laughs> I don't think they're 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 both brunettes. I guess. Um, Stevens would actually later in life befriend the real life Page, who was older and kind of help her get better compensation for you know everyone in Hollywood oh, using her I, image. I've heard of that story. I just didn't realize it was him mm -hmm. who did that. That's cool. Seriously, so it's not just exploitation. How about that? Good for him. Right. <laughs> so so the character of the Rocketeer actually debuts in issues 1 and 2 of Star Slayer as a backup feature. There's a name. Star Slayer itself sounds amazing. It's a co <laughs> it's comic created by a Mike Grau. It's about a Celtic warrior during the time of the Roman okay. Empire. All right. I went more sci-fi in my mind. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah. no, and it's like, you know, it almost looks like Conan the Barbarian, but like Roman Empire versus the Celts <laughs> instead of like the sword and fantasy thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the Rocketeer became a hit, uh, and this was kind of early in that independent comics movement, right? So outside of Marvel, outside of DC, you have these independent comic labels blossoming up everywhere and kind of getting fan bases. In fact, in 1982, he would win the first Comic-Con International's Russ Manning Most Promising Newcomer Award, which is named after uh, Russ Manning, who he used to ink for earlier. Sounds like that uh, Montgomery Burns achievement award in the field of excellence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whatever it is. So even when Stevens made the comic, from the very beginning, he figured it would make for a good movie. And I think he thought, like, I could sell this probably. So in, in 1985, he actually gave... Uh, uh, writers Danny Bilson and Paul DeMeo, a free option on the Rocketeer rights. Now, Bils Bilson and DeMeo were friends and writing partners. Uh, they first uh, started writing together on a 1984 sci-fi film called Trancers, which was about a time-traveling detective. I need to watch this. Yeah. Sounds like... Um What's the what's the the Scott Bakula thing that just jumped out of my head? Oh, oh, Quantum uh, leap. Quantum leap. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but you know, pretty pretty. Uh, I don't know if pulpy is the word, but it's it's also a bit of a cult classic. And then they would do Zone Troopers in 1985. It's about World War II soldiers who fight an alien ship, and Wilson even directed that one. So, you, you know, they're, they're genre films, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Pulpy genre films. 
And the original idea they had to make a Rocketeer movie was to make something kind of low budget and, and independent, black and white even. Then they brought on William Deere, who had just directed Henry and the Hendersons. And they brought him <laughs> yeah, in. That to, movie was a hit. Yeah. They brought him in to direct and help write. And once his name was attached, like, okay, well, this is a bigger scope now. This is going right. to be like a, a, a real movie, I guess. So they began shopping the film to major studios in 1986. And it, it eventually lands at Disney. And uh, speaking of Danny Bilson, I talked with him. <laughs> You gotta explain how you got connected to Danny Bilson because it's pretty interesting. Well, I'll, I'll get there because let's talk about Bilson a little bit, and it'll right. all make sense if you remember that my day job is a video game journalist. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but uh, but you know, after the Rocketeer, Bilson and DeMeo they kept working together. They worked on TV stuff for a while, including the Flash television series. But after that, Bilson would get involved with video games. He was uh, working on guiding creative and narrative IP development at Electronic Arts. He's working on games like The Sims, some of those earliest Harry Potter games, Command & Conquer, Medal of Honor, and their James Bond games. And then he became the VP of Creative Production at THQ, and he was involved with THQ till just a bit before its closing. Mm -hmm. so, so he was there, so he was you know knee-deep in video games, and... Uh, now he actually is a teacher at a uh, USC. USC, thank you. I was like something California, yeah. <laughs> uh, and um, my my coworker Dean Takahashi has ties to that college, uh, so he and he has ties to video games, so so he knows Bilson pretty well. I was like, hey, can I maybe talk to him? And he's like, ah, oh, sure. Here's, here's email. I'll email him, give you an introduction, and yeah, Boom. this was able to happen. Go. So it was great to talk to him. And his partner Paul DeMeo died in 2018, but before that. They had wrote a, script, a spec script together for The Five Bloods, which Spike Lee uh, would turn into a movie in 2020. Very cool. So, they, they, so it's nice that they had that kind of that nice Last, hurrah uh, yeah. as a writing team. About to have a nice viewing party for mm -hmm. that movie. Yeah, someday. I mean, everyone was talking about it last year, I remember. I had no right. idea there was a Rocketeer connection at the yeah, time. Yeah, of all things. Right. Uh, so, hey, why don't we listen to that interview now, and let's, let's hear what Wilson has to say about his experience making The Rocketeer. Well, I guess just to start here, can you do you believe it's been thirty years? Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, really, longer for you, right? Because it was like a, a five-year pre-production process, right? Yeah, it was six years. I think we started in shoot eighty-six. I think. I, I, I probably shouldn't tell you, but that's the year I was born. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so how did this, how did you get involved with the Rocketeer project? Um, when Paul and I were working at Empire Pictures in the 80s, we were uh, working on, it, our office was on Fairfax Avenue and around the corner was the Golden Apple Comic Store. So we would walk over there at lunchtime and look through the bins and, um, and look for it because we were working in, generating lots of ideas in sort of that directed VHS. Well, it wasn't exactly that, but sort of the Charlie Band wanted to make 2000 movies by the year 2000. So let's just put it at that. So we were generating lots of ideas. So we used to, we, you know, we really liked the comics of that era a lot. They were very influential, the ones from the 80s. And one of them, along with 
American flag and Dark Knight Returns was the Rocketeer, which we found in the bins, the old Kamiko version. And we fell in love with it. And we were, I remember we tried to contact Dave and we learned that a director, I believe Mike Miner, has his option on it was just lapsing. So we tried to contact Dave. And I remember then we went to Italy to make Zone Troopers in the beginning of 85. And when we came back, I guess all this happened after we came back. That's that's right. And Dave came over to our little office at Empire, which was on, um, boy, I think we moved in the middle of all this. I'm getting a little blurry. But we started on Fairfax where we found the Rocketeer. By the time we were working on it, we had moved to La Brea. And I remember Dave being in the office and us showing him production designs for Zone Troopers, which I think we'd already shot, but I didn't show it to him yet. And everything we all like we Paul and Dave and I just like the same stuff like we were big fans of 1930s movies and when we talked about how badly we want to do the Rocketeer one, I remember distinctly one of the ideas that we had was we wanted to put the creeper in it and he kind of was shocked that we knew Rondo Hatton and the creeper and he was a big fan and it was one of those there was a lot of synergies so we didn't have any money at the time so we couldn't pay him to option the material, but he gave us a free option on it because we were kindred spirits and kind of loved the same thing. And then it was a very long journey of about six years till the time um, from that point till the movie came out. But we did start with one producer and that producer was with us on it for years, trying to sell it and set it up. Started out when he was an executive at Fox. His name's Lloyd Levin. And I'm still working with him today, literally. And he produced The Five Bloods, which was our last movie. So um, that relationship goes way back to 1985. It comes back to, goes back to when I came back from Italy from shooting Zone Troopers. So yeah, 85. And so with Lloyd, he liked the, we took it to him first. And then Larry Gordon was at Fox and then he had his own company. Anyway, they all got involved. And then it took us a long time to set it up. I mean, it seemed like we pitched it everywhere everywhere with the comic book and our take on it and eventually we set it up at disney it took a long time just to even set it up for development and then there were multiple directors too along the way because first it was bill deer was going to direct it then we spent a year or two doing drafts with bill deer and um that's why he has co-story credit on it because there were some of his ideas still in there and and then I don't know, I don't recall, I actually don't recall how he was replaced by Joe Johnston. Uh, my recollection was it had to do with the success of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, and they wanted a, a, a stronger bet. But I don't know. I mean, Bill was really pretty hot back then. He had done Harry and the Hendersons in the middle of that. So honestly, I don't remember how that change happened. But then Joe Johnston came on. And he started working with us. But Dave Stevens was always there. Always. Always, always, always. You remember, like, what were uh, Bill's contributions that still stuck around even after he left? It's weird. I don't remember. <laughs> well, it was only 30 some years ago. No, but it's like, I remember stuff that we wrote with him that, we, that was not in the movie. That I remember distinctly. I remember a big sequence that we wrote with him that's not in the movie. Well, now you're just teasing me. What was that big sequence about? Oh, I was so. Oh, it was, it was a different sequence at the. There was a nightclub on a pier with a submarine, <laughs> and 
I remember there was a gag where it was family night at this nightclub, except it was all the mob families. It was kind of a gag. And there was a giant shootout at this nightclub, I think over the water with a submarine outside. I've got some of these drafts somewhere, but who cares? I mean, it's like... <laughs> I might care, but who, it, how it, many of these are there? Yeah, but I don't remember... I don't remember specifics, but I think there were little bits and pieces here and there that he developed with us along the way. I mean, I remember feeling perfectly that he deserved co-story credit. I remember that. So I just don't remember exactly what the beats were. I remember something thematically that he emphasized, which was this is about because we always knew that Cliff went from kind of a, a self-interested character to helping his friends. And I think Bill helped define that a bit. And, you know, Paul was your long term writing partner. What was the writing dynamic like between you two? Did you just kind of just split the work in half? Did you each have different strengths or different parts of the processes that you favored? Back then, yes. Later years, very different. But in those days, we used to literally have two monitors plugged into one computer and he would type and I would sit across and we would look at the same page and literally co-write every word. It was we did this for years and years and years. And in retrospect, it was really slow and painful, really slow and painful. So uh, I brought a lot of conceptual. I still do a lot of the conceptualizing of stuff. And he would like he certainly in those days wrote a lot of the prose. And then the dialogue, we would, it would be line by line. We'd go over it. In later years, when we got smart, and it all happened when we weren't able to work in the same city and we had to work on VidCon, we started dividing up scenes. And it was really liberating. We got a lot faster. Like Five Bloods was written in like three weeks because two and a half, I think, to the first draft because we would just divide it up. And from then on, for the last eight years or something or whatever, Paul passed away three years ago. So let's say, yeah, I guess those five or six years after the game business, when we went back to screenwriting, um, we would divide it up and it got very fast. And I also learned at a certain point, we'd written together so long that when we wrote by ourselves, we wrote the same stuff as if we were writing together because I kind of knew what he would say. And I still, to this day, without him being here in my writing, I know what he would say at times. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So... You know, when Disney was the one that sort of stepped in, was that a surprise to you that it was going to be Disney of all companies, especially, you know, that 80s Disney is a very different company than one we know now. It was Touchstone originally mm. because it was going to be more like Raiders, you know, PG-13 at some point in the middle of the process. And I think it was at the film was in production or right before they decided it was going to be a Disney movie. Again, it had something to do with the success of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. And a lot of people were really upset about that. But I think the producers were upset. They felt like we're going to hurt it in those days by making a Disney movie. It's we're going to lose audience over it. It's going to be perceived as a kid's movie. This is 1991. OK, so that was there was a lot of people upset. I was not upset personally because I'm a huge Disney fan. And one of my life goals was to have a Walt Disney Pictures movie. That was one of my goals. So I was kind of like, I'm fine with it. But a lot of people felt that it hurt the box office at that time. And then, you know, you, you had that long production period with Disney with a lot of different rewrites. Was, would you say that they were especially difficult to work with or was it kind of norm for the business? I think it was norm for the business. They used to give massive amounts of written notes. You would do a draft and then you get like 
six, eight pages of prose, you know, notes just in theoretical and what about why are they like each other and how can we go further? You know, one of the favorite notes of all developers is always, I think we can go a bit further. Mm. So there was a lot of that. Um, I don't remember being aggravated at all. Like it just felt like normal Hollywood process. I don't felt, I never felt they were terrible or unfair. And I'm still friendly with the person who was sort of the lead uh, development person at Disney on it. Her name by the name of Jane Goldenring is still a producer. We're still have a, a really good relationship. So we weren't arguing. It was, I remember the only thing that I would look at in those notes was sometimes I would try to say, whose note is this? Because we want to know if it was Katzenberg's note, because then you got to do it, right? You can't really <laughs> dance around it. So sometimes I was looking for that, but overall it was just, it felt normal. Yeah, it was a grind and there were tons of notes, but it didn't feel like that's kind of just Hollywood. You talked about how, you know, you were both fans of those original comics. Was it important to you to kind of remain faithful to those? Was what Did you sort of feel uncomfortable when you strayed from that? Well, we wrote the comics with Dave in the second group of comics. The Cliff Goes to New York. We wrote that with Dave Stevens and our credit's kind of weird. It's like in a thank you, but hmm. we scripted that and or or most of it and uh so i felt a certain ownership of the character not like dave but i felt organic to the i felt like you know deep into the team it wasn't like i was adapting because i was working so closely with dave both on the comics and the script um i just felt like i had some i was a part of the organically part of that team i did want to say for clarity that um, there were a couple of other people who came in and rewrite, like they took Paul and I off it for a while. And at first there was a guy named Jim Kaup, who was a big writer in those days for Touchstone who did a draft. And there's, I definitely know there's a really good joke of his in the movie, which is big gopher. That was his. And I remember that's the only thing that I remember that was left from his draft because that was a, that was a good joke. Uh, and then Frank Darabont did a draft who were Paul and I were always friendly with Frank. Frank was actually the art director on our first film, Trancers, when we were all young. Well, it was only like five years before that. So, um, and he did a draft. And I don't remember the back and forth, but there's still, oh, here's a Bill Deere thing that's in there. I just remembered. There's some dialogue in the movie studio. And that speech, acting is not acting. And like, you know that speech? Mm -hmm. That's Bill's. Absolutely. So there's something I'm happy to, you know, I have no problem <laughs> assigning credit to where credit's due, you know, and so there was collab, but that was, I love that little thing. And that was Bill Deere's, as I recall, that was Bill Deere's. Uh, things like the story and Neville Singh, well, that was all Paul and I. And, you know, all those ideas of how, of basing it on Errol Flynn as a Nazi, that was us. And, and there were different versions of the ending. My favorite was and I still have the draft with this one. It just got reduced for scale at one point. But it was said of the, the observatory, the Zeppelin was meeting them out in the desert. And Cliff shows up with the whole, everybody from the airfield in the air and the gangsters are on the oh, ground. Wow. So it was multiple aircraft and the gangsters in their cars on the ground versus the Zeppelin and the Nazis and stuff. And we wrote that whole thing. And then it got scoped down to... Um, the observatory, which is great. And I don't have any issues with it. I just remember that we had a big version. You know, I, I wanted to ask you, what was it like writing a superhero movie at a time where you had to kind of be very 
aware of, of limitations of special effects. You couldn't just, you know, depend on CG coming in and doing whatever you wanted. Was there a lot of times where you had to kind of think smaller no. or scale back? No. no, because if you put yourself at that time period, we were dealing with ILM. These were going to be the state. They were state of the art effects at the time. We weren't saying, gee, we don't have CG. We wrote whatever we wanted that could be budgeted for. Right. It, it's like, What's cool about the movie is they, you know, Joe was really into airplanes and he's a flyer himself. So part of his connection to the movie was the planes. And so a lot of that air action, you know, and real planes up in the air and all that's much better than CG because you can feel it. And there's lots of that in this movie. So I think that's an asset, but we never felt visually constrained by not having something we didn't know about. I mean, in those days, it was like the last Starfighter. That was all CG, right? In the mm -hmm. 80s. And nope, we were just staging the movie. It wasn't like can't do this because of that, because we weren't doing Princess of Mars or something. And we did write Princess of Mars at Disney, Paul and I. And in that one, we just had to go. They're going to figure it out. We're just writing the Tharks, you know, and they did eventually. Visually, they totally figured it out. You brought up Neville Sinclair. I wanted to ask you which character was the most fun to write. But I also kind of wanted to guess that it might have been Neville Sinclair. Can I think about this for a second? Yeah, absolutely. Eddie Valentine. Oh. But Eddie Valentine as written wasn't exactly like Eddie Valentine performed. So I think Eddie Valentine was written like um, a real 1930s fast-talking gangster. And it got a little slowed down, I think, in the movie. And PV also was written like real fast-talking. And it got altered just by interpretation, which I love these interpretations. I'm just saying they were in the writing we were really writing, oh, okay, here's the thing that's really unique, I think, about this movie. And if I see it now, it's like, how do I get away with this? And this is really what, you want to say what was fun to write? We wrote 1930s dialogue as if we were writing a movie in the 1930s, and I don't know how we got away with it. Like, now when I watch that movie, I think one of the things about it that's definitely Bilson and DeMeo, absolutely, this was all us, is that dialogue because even if you're doing a period movie, you usually don't write it like it was written in the 30s. You know what I mean? So, but we were really into it and that was the voice and we just went with it. I think, but I, it, to me in years later, it became really noticeable. Like, how do we get away with that? Because they don't do that. It's not common. If you look at like Captain America, let's say, mm -hmm. right? Which I, which I love, Joe Johnson did it. They're not painting on the dialogue as thick as we were, not at all. Because they, it's maybe not a good idea, but we got we got away with it. And that was I think that was one of the most fun things about it. If you ever saw a film, that film that I referenced earlier that we made called Zone Troopers, that's why Dave gave us the rights. And Zone Troopers in its own way is a, has certain precedence to the Rocketeer. It's that dialogue. It's making a movie as if it were in the 30s and 40s. I believe it. You can stream it. It's on. If you've never seen it, it's on Amazon or some of those. It's about a bunch of World War II GIs that find a crashed alien spaceship in Italy in 1944. And it's made as if it were a B movie made in 1944 with that, you know, gee whiz, Sarge, you know, that kind of dialogue. So um, that was kind of who Paul and I were. Trancers is the same. Trancers is just Philip Marlowe. It's, it's Lady in the Lake turned into a science fiction movie. I mean, the, there's dialogue right out of Lady in the Lake in Trancers. So Paul and I grew up on old movies and our early stuff was definitely expressions of that. I don't, I mean, okay, somebody will say, yeah, what about Five Bloods and Treasure Sierra Madre? It's like, okay. But that wasn't as intentional. That, the partners kind of brought the, they were like, we knew 
But it, in Bloods, it was first Oliver Stone wanted more treasure, Sarah Modern, and Spike wanted more treasure. So that wasn't exactly us as much. You know, but I'm, gosh, going back to Nelson Sinclair again, but I just really love that character. And a lot of people do. He, he's such a, he, he's despicable. I mean, he's literally a Nazi, but he's entertaining in, in, the, in his own way. It's never boring when he's on the screen. Is, is that a difficult thing to do? It seems like we don't have that many recently memorable villains in movies. And I just wonder what the trick is to that. Well, it was modeled, first of all, you, I can't speak to whatever the 80% of it that Timothy Dalton brought to it. I, we only wrote it, right? Mm -hmm. But let's, what were we writing? We were writing, there was a rumor in World War II that Errol Flynn was a Nazi spy. And it was, it's like a unproven, it's nonsense. And that there was a radio and a house in Hollywood where other Nazi spies were, communicating with the Germans. And we just took all that and mashed it into Neville Sinclair. So it was, what if Errol Flynn was a spy? And, and then the charming spy, it was Basil Rathbone. So we were writing Basil Rathbone the whole time. There was an interpretation that happened during the making of this film that we weren't particularly thrilled about, but it's part of the evolution of the movie. And we weren't on the set because we were making The Flash at the same time as this was shot. We were on the set a little, not as much as we would have been or would have liked to have been. But Tim Dalton decided that he should fall in love with Jenny. And that was never in our idea. That was not in the script. It should all be you're an evil ass and this is all manipulation. You don't care about her at all. You're evil. You're like Basil Rathbone. And he's like, no, no, I think the character is much more interesting if he's genuinely falling in love with her. Now, since this was not written per se, it's more of an interpretation and there were some shadings. I'm not sure that's fully realized. I just think it's kind of, he's mooning over her and you don't know if he means it or not. I think, I think when I watch it, but that was not exactly our intention. And the writer's intention, it was, he's a fucker and it's all manipulation, you know, because the hero's only as good as the bad guy is bad. Now he is pretty bad in the Zeppelin at the end. Mm -hmm. And yes, of course, that was our idea that he is hoisted by his own guitar and he dies with the rocket. Well, it's, it, that ending is great, though, and it's, you know, it, it's not a big fist fight to the death at the end. There's a bit of more of a, a wit play, and you have the setup with the bubble gum. Like, how, how do you come up with an ending like that? Do you have to reverse engineer it a bit? Like, well, we want him to explode at the end. How is he going to explode? How are we going to figure that out? Well, we wanted him to, you know, the way I write, the way I write is I go in the scene and I think about what would be the coolest thing that happens next. In the case of that, I'm sure we set out from the outline in the beginning that he was going to put on the rocket pack faulty and they're going to try to warn him and he's going to be arrogant and die. And the Hollywood sign, I can't remember whose idea that was. It might've been a Bill Deere. It feels like a Bill Deere idea, but I could be dead wrong. It could be Joe Johns. It could be anybody's idea. It could have been our idea. I don't remember. <laughs> but um, the, I don't like boss fight at the, uh, you know, I hate him. Like, like as soon as the boss fight starts, uh, I'm out. I'm just like, I watch my watch. Okay, the hero's going to win. Okay, part one of the boss fight, end of act one of the boss fight, hero's going to look like the hero's not going to win. Act two of the boss fight, he's going to figure out what the chink in the armor is. And act three, he's you think he's going to achieve it. And just when you think he achieved it, oh no, he actually didn't. And there's three more beats. And every friggin' scene is like that in every superhero movie. So to me, and I love the superhero movies, but when it starts to get a little bit two acts of Cirque du Soleil followed by a boss fight, it gets exhausting. <laughs> so, because the patterning is kind of exhausting, but we never really wanted to write a big boss fight because I get bored at the end. So it's more about 
yeah, you can have action, but, and there is action. There's people on top and the things burning and all that, but it's, as soon as they start punching each other, I'm kind of like, okay, where's, what do I, you know, it doesn't matter if it's Iron Man and Ultron or a, a cowboy and a, and a villain. You know, kind of talking about the other superheroes, you know, when you were writing this, you had Superman, basically, and maybe that was about it for maybe some of the big t- ones to look at for inspiration. Batman. Batman, Batman. Was- Right. See, Batman 89 was really important. And I don't, Superman 78 and Batman 89 are really, really, really important. If we're talking about the evolution of superhero films, in my mind, and somebody can say, well, what about? And I'm not thinking about the other ones. But Superman in 78 was big. But Batman 89 is where they took the 80s generation of comics and started to dig into that, started to take the influence of the Dark Knight and the influence of American Flag, and the influence of some of the more Watchmen, and the influence of the more sophisticated books that I was falling in love with, and put that at the movie. So in my mind, Batman 89 is where they started to put, I'm 30 years old, and I can look at this movie and feel the way I did about the book when I was 10, which is like they sophisticated up to my level. And that was the mission of the Flash TV show. And the Rocketeer was closer related to Indiana Jones than thinking about a superhero movie. I don't think we were ever thinking of, well, that's not true. Because we knew it was an origin story. We knew what we were doing. But <laughs> I didn't think of it in terms of, in terms of because he doesn't have any superpowers, right? So we weren't dealing with that science fiction. Batman doesn't either, but we weren't dealing with that. I think that um, The Rocketeer is, basic, is for, by Dave Stevens is based on King of the Rocket Man, the serial from the 40s that Dave loved that he saw on TV when he was a kid. That was later called Commando Cody. It's the same thing, King of the Rocket Man. And so his, Dave was an artist and obviously fabulous at drawing women like Vargas, you know, like he, that was his thing. And he loved period and he loved aviation a lot and the airplanes and but all the people in the book, you know, are different people he knew, like Doug Wildey is PV. And, and, you know, we all put what we know and love into it. And that's how the Rocketeer came together. I don't think anybody was thinking about a superhero movie. What we were thinking about was Doc Savage, because Doc Savage was the original um, Howard Hughes, right, in the comics. But we couldn't give the rights to Doc Savage because that was something else. So we changed it to Howard Hughes, which made sense for... Um, Where'd the rocket pack come from? Right. right. Well, in that period, Howard Hughes made sense. That was our idea. And that that's always an interesting character because that's like the one thing that's really tied to like hard history there is just throwing Howard Hughes in there. Did you have to be like more careful or was, did it require extra thought when you were writing that you just treated him like everyone else? There's nothing in there that's not just Howard Hughes from the newspapers. You know what I mean? There's mm-hmm. nothing in there where we had to do any research or work on Howard Hughes. You know, it was more the myth of Howard Hughes. You know, that that's that's who that was. We didn't do any work on that. It um, but but bringing him in was, you know, you're tying it to history. You know, there's Nazis in it. It's got it's got it's got history. Um, again, it was we think the movie was made possible by Indiana Jones. I think that's why they made the movie. But really, we were thinking we were more in Indiana Jones land than thinking of superheroes at all. Steven, to this minute, I still think of it much more that way. You mentioned how you were a fan of Disney. Did did it kind of like excite you seeing the Rocketeer show up in some theme park stuff here and there? And were oh, you ever privy to like I, more plans for bigger theme park things? 
Now, I'm a big fanboy, so I have a collection of everything. I probably have more Rocketeer stuff than anybody. So, and I'm also a Disney fan. And so I, um, yeah, I have everything. I have everything. I have the original, you know, the merchandise they didn't make. I've got the posters that didn't come. I mean, I really am into it. I've got, and I'm on the like Facebook thing and I should, I figure I should start taking pictures of stuff and posting it because people are always posting their collections. I have a feeling I might have the best. I do have that <laughs> statue that you've got over your left shoulder. Yeah, I, I swear I'm not just pandering. That is always there. Well, well mine, if you, I'll show you my office at school, which is a plate. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I run the game school at USC. Right, right. Part of the film school. But as a matter of fact, I've got a big student recruiting event coming up in an hour or two. Oh, but I'm just going to put my hair. This is my office at school. <laughs> so you see, just in my office at school, I've got the same statue there in the window. Right next to it is the Flash from 1990 Flash toy that came out a couple years ago. Next to that is a picture of Paul, Dave, and I in front of the Bulldog Cafe on the set. And then up next to FDR is one of those alt rocketeer things done by one of those artists you know because i went to a show five six four five years ago where all these artists had done stuff and you could buy tribute art so i bought a few things so um i'm a, I'm a fan that's awesome yeah i mean i know like there, there's still pv's polar pipes is still the name of that one place in hollywood studios that sells like ices and stuff and yeah. you're just seeing that and peeking in and seeing the helmet in there that well, makes i went there I went there when the movie opened to Florida. Mm -hmm. That's like June, like right around when the movie opened, when they had the Bulldog Cafe set right in the back. And they had, they may still have the rocket pack and the stuff in the little where, I don't know. They don't have that movie tour anymore. So they don't. I, don't know. I don't know where they moved to that. Cause yeah, you don't go through that warehouse anymore. I don't know where they put that stuff, but you know, they've got the kitty show on Disney junior. Right. Um, they've tried to mess with it. You know, they never ask, they never invite us to the remakes of anything. So it's mm -hmm. kind of, uh, I got to make my own stuff. It's weird. You know, it's like the flash never ridiculous, but, um, no, I'm still, I'm writing a lot right now, honestly, all kinds of stuff. Um, hopefully we're close to another green light on a movie. I still say we like Paul's still alive, but it, it's, you know, I work well, working for so long. Yeah. We is fine. Mm -hmm. you know, so you're right. in a game too, I see. Yep, yep. So game journalism is is my main gig. So. Oh, okay. That's how Dean hooked us up. Yeah, I work with Dean. Yeah, actually. So yeah, I okay. So you know, I mean, you know who I am in the game land, right? You are, yeah. Um, I think I think you're actually at one of the Games Beats events I was at. I, I was. At, at some point, I was trying to track you down. and It was last year or the year before. I did a, a thing on education, and I've known Dean forever. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, no, I'm running the school. We're we're blowing it up. We're doing all kinds of stuff professionally in games. I'm mostly screenwriting right now, although I'm into some weird stuff. You know, with, with the gaming, did, was there any point during the kind of gaming part of your career where you thought I would really like to make a Rocketeer game? Or, oh, or those always. Available? Well, there was one. I have it. There was a uh, Super Nintendo. There's Super Nintendo and an NES one, yeah, when the movies came out. But nothing since then. They're bad. The They're NES terrible. one's okay. It's okay. I, the Super Nintendo one I can't speak on as much. It, it has that weird flying I segment. I don't remember the differences. But the thing that was much closer to it was Rocket Ranger that CinemaWare did back mm -hmm. in the day on PC. I, I used to play it on my Amiga. That was a total ripoff of Rocketeer. Um would I love to make a, so if somebody's like, I don't think a lot about the only way I would do a game. And I actually interviewed for a, 
maybe a month or two ago at Insomniac because it was a lead on a on a triple A on the next one. I think I know what it is. They weren't telling me. <laughs> and they didn't hire me, which I thought was stupid. But I agree. No, I mean, real, there's nobody more experienced <laughs> than I am. And and it was a four year project. And I, I think, you know, what happens with me, man, is I scare them because I'm just too I've been too senior. So nobody wants to hire an ex EVP mm. to, to, on a team. It's kind of weird. But I would if somebody said a decent studio, a reasonable studio wanted to make a Rocketeer game, I would I would write it for sure. Be in, in a second, I would want to because um, I have we you know there's a lot of Rocketeer story untold. You know, we had a sequel plan that we never executed. Right. But it was I mean, mostly Cliff goes to New York extrapolated. Yeah, it makes sense, especially since you said you worked on that comic, huh? Well, I wrote it. I mean, yeah. literally <laughs> wrote it. It worked was like on. <laughs> Dave was like, I don't know, when he finally published it, it was like, thank you to us and Mike Kaluta. Well, Kaluta inked the whole thing. And we wrote, I think if it was six books, we wrote five. Because he may have had a first book or part of it written when we started. I can't remember. Because, you know, Dave was insanely slow. I mean, insanely slow. Because he was meticulous. He wasn't, he couldn't really write comics. You know, because he couldn't turn them out. That's why the art is so fabulous in The Rocketeer. But you know what's really interesting? Rocketeer is more popular today on April 6, 2021, than it was a year ago, even. Right. Because of Disney Plus. And that seems like that's been building momentum for almost, you know, since almost like 2000, early 2000s, it feels like people have been talking about this movie in more reverent tones and there's been more fans. And even Disney themselves now, they release a good bit of merchandise. Like, I don't have oh, yeah. to go to weird dark corners of the internet to get a Rocketeer shirt. I could go to Disney World and buy one. Yeah, it's 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 really great. And um, I would love to do more work on the Rocketeer if it was ever possible. But it tends that they never go back to the originals and stuff. You know? mm -hmm. So I'm not counting on anything. And I'm generating my own stuff. I'm really doing a lot of stuff now, like writing a lot, like more than in years. So hopefully uh, you'll see more... Uh, more of our stuff. Well, one Bilson DeMeo I rewrote and then really close on another movie with, um, we have a director and we're getting close. So it's not comic booky stuff, but it's still good. Hey, it's still cool. good. More like Five Bloods actually the next one. So I guess kind of just to, to kind of round everything out, when, like 30 years later, you someone says a rocketeer, how, how does that make you feel? What do you think about just evoking that name? I cried immediately. It's awesome. You know, it's like you do... I don't know. You're asking me a, a, it's a big question when your partner's dead. Sure. But, but um, the legacy is there. There's the Rocketeer and there's the Five Bloods and there's the Flash and there's the other stuff we did, the Viper and Sentinel, Human Target, whatever, and all the Empire movies. But the most important things we did, I believe, are the Rocketeer and the Five Bloods that Paul and I did together. So, well, you know, it's it's one of my favorite movies. And uh, man, getting to talk to you about it like this has really been an absolute treat. This has been uh, just fantastic for me. Oh, cool. And um, yeah, if you have any follow up questions or anything, um, feel free. And if you work with Dean, well, maybe we'll run into each other on a game. Yeah, maybe. once we're once traveling again, I'm sure I'll be at another event and I can I can meet you in person. Yeah, we're doing our USC Games Expo on Saturday, May 15th which will be like, oh, it's like four or five hours of streaming on oh. four channels. So we're, we're really blowing it up. Um, yeah, I'm sure. I bet. I wonder if Dean's just going to straight up cover it or not, or maybe. Doesn't really one of his daughters go there? Yeah, his daughter goes to uh, USC. She might have 
graduating yet? I don't know. Dean is really tight with USC. So, you know, mm-hmm. I, and I knew him from the business, but yeah, hopefully he'll cover it. He should. Um, we had 80,000 uniques last year for our first time oh. for school. That's pretty good. And we're doing a college, a high school day. You know, it's, we're just, we're just really, uh, there's a lot going on at USC games. That's a whole other story. There's a lot yeah, of growth. Sounds like it. A lot of growth going on. We've just gotten a big gift and there's lots about to blow up. So, that's all cool too. Anyway, um, nice talking to you. And we did a little rocketeering, and uh, yes, you'll edit did. some of the crap out, right? Yes. And- no. No worries. Yeah, we're, we'll keep out the uh, uh, the the thing about uh, whatever it was. I'm yeah. so scatterbrained already. I know there was something. It'll get out of okay. there. All right. Thanks, man. Thank you so much, Danny. That was really fantastic. All right. Take care. I'm glad you um, are a fan of the movie. So. Oh, absolutely. You have a good one. See ya. Bye. wasn't that fun very very much very nicely done i'll tell you when i was when you were reading about the development of the movie i was almost nervous like does he is this a good memory for him because and he talked about but all the times that he got taken off the project that brought back in and it took like five years like oh this sounds like a nightmare and he's like no it's fine well no the the opposite he's a huge fan of the he's very proud of it and that makes (laughs) me really happy well it sounds like you know i i feel like from the outside looking in you hear about people going on and off projects and oh what a dog eat dog world he's like that's just the business. Like, yeah. That's just how it works. And to him, he was happy to just get a film under Disney. Right. Yeah. That's cool to hear that he's, mm-hmm. he's also a Disney fanatic. and, and, and Right. Fun and thing. he was one of the people defending like, oh, no, it's good that we're putting the Disney name on this. I like that. Everyone was like, oh, it's going to get neutered or whatever. Yeah, we'll put it on kids. Touchstone. Come on. It's just um, I, one thing I've learned now doing this show. Writers are very interesting people. Oh, yeah. It was just, it was just fun. Like, like he, he just went on so many wonderful tangents and. Told well, some great stories. Yeah. And, and sometimes yeah. people are like, oh, I'm going off too much. No, no, no. Keep going. Yeah, keep I want to hear these stories. Yeah. <laughs> I was so excited. He he has the same Rocketeer statue that I do the in my validated mic. Uh, I feel incredibly validated. <laughs> but yeah, that was just so much fun. And I was so happy we got to do that. Like I said, I always want to do something special for this. Uh, so thank you so much, Danny Bilson. Yes, thank you. Yes. That, that was fantastic. And I hope you all enjoyed the interview. But you know, like you know, his contributions were great. But if there's one single person who maybe contributed the most to this movie, it might have to be James Horner, the composer. Now, listen. Sometimes people decide to go hard for a project. This is one of like the the top tiers of going hard for a project because for the pulpy, you know, action adventure serial about a rocket guy, we got one of the best pieces of film composition in the history of cinema and, and it's still used today in many places but the funny thing is it's it's such a good piece of music and so stands on its own like most people you know it's from the rocket yeah absolutely God, yeah. Like, t- talk about it and we'll uh well, yeah, we'll gosh i was here. it was hard to find uh, like an interview with him of it and i found he talked to some like uh movie show in 1991 about it for like five minutes as part of like the original press junket and even that video on youtube was like turned to private so i couldn't watch it i finally found it on some weird like other video site eventually right so so i was able to hear him talk about it and it was yeah it was with uh someone called the movie show some old like hollywood show thing and i'll share the link later but this is what he said about the score 
The Rocketeer is a kind of story that needs a very straight-ahead, traditional, go get em type of score. And if I took really many chances in any direction, I'd be doing a disservice to the film. Well, you know, it's true, it's... There's a simplicity to it in that it doesn't depend on all these light motifs, and there's no, it, basically it, one it theme. It's very much that. Mickey Mouse is the movie. Like right. When you think about the um, the clown rescue sequence, the music very closely follows the action, like with the, the very traditional kind of like falling notes as Cliff is falling out of the sky. The heroic theme picks up as things go his way. It, I mean, it's very traditional in that sense. It's just so well right. Well, especially that adding adding it to like a 30s-style movie like this, where it was simpler back then too, but still, you know, is able to come up with this theme that just grips you well, anytime it, you hear it. There's a very romantic quality it's to It's very romantic. It's straight and, up and from it the romantic fits, era of yeah, Hollywood. It fits that style, that 30s-style of, of, of movie as well. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. It's It's... It has like the spirit of that, but it sounds almost like you know. I don't want. I, I'm not an expert on the 1930s films, but it sounds grander than anything than maybe even ever did. It's so incredible. Well, I mean, obviously, like um, you have much more orchestration going on that you wouldn't have had in that time period. Uh, you know, of, of course, to films of that era, this was you know the big bulk of the film noir genre. Uh, a lot more jazzy, a lot more brassy. Uh, this is a lot more strings and woodwinds that wouldn't have been as typical. Um, especially like a serial like this, um, but again, it's just it's it's more about it. Just captures that spirit of what's going on in the film very well. But like, and again, in almost a an unexpected way. Like you think about you know John Williams' score for the Indiana Jones trilogy, and it is much more of that kind of brassy march fanfare kind of thing. And this has elements of that. But again, he, it was almost more. He was more concerned with catching the elements of flight. He doesn't really write about the act, at, at least as far as I can tell. He doesn't really necessarily do character motifs the way a Williams does. Right, yeah. right. So, uh, but he he's so good at capturing that kind of feeling of flight in general, and he he's kind of become known for that because some of his other big scores are for Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan, Apollo thirteen, uh, and Avatar. He actually knew Joe Johnston because he did Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, which mm-hmm. does not have a flying ant, right? So there's flying in that. Well, and of course, he wrote this, the original score for Soren. No, he didn't. Yes, he No, did. that's Jerry Goldsmith. You're am getting I, it mixed, I mixed up. up. You're getting Jerry Goldsmith mixed up. You did it again. This is like your Jurassic Park I, well, 1995 thing. Google thing returned the wrong results. <laughs> Maybe Mike's wrong. No, you can look it up if you want, but I, I like my James oh, Horner and I like my Jerry Goldsmith. Jerry Goldsmith did. Oh, this is why I got confused because he wrote some of the music that's used in the queue. Yes, including the Rocketeer. Yeah, well, there you go. Okay, I take it back. Aha, uh-huh. good thing I'm here. I was feeling all promised. I was like, oh, I'm about to make a good point. No, nope, nope, <laughs> nope. Right. Nope. So, so no, you weren't. Shut down. So he knew Joe Johnston, so that's how he got involved with this. And he, they spent so much time editing the movie before it came out and kind of getting close to the deadline. He only had about two and a half weeks to write all the music for that. Sometimes your best stuff comes under pressure. You hear that a lot, though. Yeah, they said, especially... Composers are always under the gun. Mm -hmm, Exactly. Maybe that is why there's only really one main... Yeah, there's no... Not every character has a theme. Just stick with this. It works. Yeah, we'll riff it. And you do. You do hear it come up all the time. Just real quick, too. And there's, like, the romantic theme, like the romance theme. But even that's, like, in the main theme. You'd recognize Mm -hmm. it if, if you heard it. Uh, but God. even when, like, the, um, what's the leading actress's name? Jennifer Conley. No, but, like, the character. Jenny? Yeah. Even when she's, like, discovering the secret Nazi hideout, hideout even the theme starts to start playing there, like, real subtly. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, mm-hmm. here it is. Even here, it, it, it fits. He said one challenge that they had was because the f- music wasn't in yet, but the executives were already watching cuts of the movie, and they were listening with the temp music, they thought, like, well, a lot of sequences... So 
were boring, like the opening sequence, right? Yeah. They hated it at first, and they like butchered it and made it super short. And but then then once you get the James Horner music in, they're like, oh no, this is great <laughs> as it is, longer and with this music building this up. Yeah. And that's one of the best parts of the movie. It's is for the sure opening. a great example yeah. of yeah. if you swap the music on this film, it just loses half of its that's, that's true of almost any movie. I mean, sure. know, think, think of Star Wars without John Williams, and it's mm-hmm. a mess. Yeah, I I love James Horner so, uh, so much. He's 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 maybe my favorite composer. Uh, his Land Before Time score is yeah that doesn't deserve get, to be I that good. I talk about going hard. Hey, it's a dinosaur movie for kids. I'm going to make them all cry, it's, and it's, the parents too. The kids will learn a lesson yeah. on this day. And he he himself was a pilot, kind of unfortunately, because he you know he died in 2015 in a small uh, a turbo prop crash. Mm-hmm. Which, uh, gosh, like, there's Crazy. a lot of those happening there. Remember, we almost lost uh, Harrison, Harrison Ford, Ford to one of those. So you're not going to get me in one of those small planes. Yeah, right, right. We lost John right. Denver like that. And yeah. So uh, I, I I guess now is a good point to to maybe talk about the movie. <laughs> and how if and we don't want to do a plot synopsis because, you know. Yeah, we know. Go it's watch it. It's on Disney+. Plus. It's on. If you listen to the show, you probably subscribe to Disney+. Plus. It, it holds Take two up, hours and watch one of the best movies ever. And we just watched it again. And I... Uh, this movie is just so much fun. It makes me feel so good. And, and hilarious, too. It's, it's oh, yeah. funny. It's well, so funny. So talk a little bit about, about the, the history of the film here, then we'll, we'll get into kind of our thoughts on, on it, because I, I have a lot I want to say about it. But uh, go, go ahead, Mike. T- t- tell, tell me about like its box office and how it was received in 1991. Well, not great is part of the problem. No. <laughs> uh, it only had a domestic gross of about $46.7 million. Uh, and it's it's you want to be like why and maybe there's a few reasons i think the biggest one is competition so here are the other top movies in june and some of these even came out in may but robin hood prince of thieves hence the song yes <laughs> city slickers good movie backdraft Thelma yeah. and louise i like that because <laughs> of that stupid yeah, attraction right. and universal where they <laughs> blow the room up i like a backdraft let me go bull that has a score by uh, the guy you thought. Goldsmith, yeah. Goldsmith, I believe, actually. So there. But so maybe that's it. When it At first, what they blamed was the poster. Because the poster is gorgeous. It's that Art Deco. Yeah, it's so good. Beautiful poster. And you like, got to no, find something to blame. No one knows what this means. So they very quickly like got a poster of people's faces. And, and I don't know if that really helped. Maybe there's this idea that it's a bit ahead of its time. At this point, the only... Like, yeah, Batman in 89 is a big hit. Yeah, Batman Returns are around this time. And they're big hits. But they're very different from this. You don't have the Marvel movies. The Superman movies were kind of like... They're well done. They're at the time, too, now. They're so. well done. So maybe people just didn't really go for this kind of thing yet. Or maybe it was that stigma of making this a Walt Disney movie, and maybe that threw people off. Like, mm-hmm. well, oh, it's an action movie, but Walt Disney, it's going to be for kids. I don't know. But, I mean, you know, they had success already with Who Framed Roger Rabbit, but maybe people were more okay. But that was still under that was touchstone. touchstone. That yeah. was still touchstone. Yeah, and that was fine. Touchstone. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe that was it. I, I have no idea. Uh, it's, I mean, It's funny how things turn around now. Like, oh, it was t- like Nightmare Before Christmas. That was touchstone as well. So the, it's like the opposite effect for that one, mm-hmm. you know. But, it was on Touchstone, but would have done better as a Disney. But that, yeah, and that same thing with you know that movie obviously became a big cult classic later, and maybe this one not to that degree. Sure. But it did develop a nice cult following, and and you know, Bill Simmons even talked about on Disney Plus how many more people get to watch it now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how great that is! Uh, I, I heard, bet he loves that. Oh yeah, it's fantastic. I, I, now to, it's to a point where 
when the 25th anniversary happened, they released a bunch of merchandise Disney did. Like, you can find stuff. They sell Rocketeer shirts. It's it's not to the extent of Nightmare Before Christmas. But it's better than Dick Tracy. It's not getting its own shop or anything. Right? What's that movie going to get its weird (laughs) cult following? You know, I've still never seen it. Maybe we need to watch that and do that episode sometime. That's fun. That was 80s. But this movie is getting its due now. People, you hear it all the time now. People love this movie. People Mm -hmm. bring it up. Uh, You know, um, what's the uh, Red Letter Media is a you know really popular channel yeah. and Mike from there he loves this movie he brings that up mm-hmm. right and you, you hear that from a lot of people this is because it's great you can't yeah. deny quality it's, it's, it's just good I have a short list of like what I consider to be perfect movies it's like Empire Strikes Back Roger Rabbit Raiders of the Lost Ark Jurassic Park and like this like there's not a, a thing about this movie right that I would change like maybe you can like like oh the special effects are old and you know what like yeah, I don't that's think the thing I don't time. think I think they're like you look at it and you're like yeah it's from the 90s but it's in no way distracting or takes you out of like the he's still flailing all. about it and it looks yeah, great do, I mean it's, not, it's, it's no worse than some movies today with the CG stuff that like obviously it's not real but like not many movies are you know tricking me today yeah I feel this is more grounded yeah like you said like 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 a clearly CG guy flying around like and, that, and that's the thing and that's why it's almost be hard to make a movie like this today. You know, it's part of what made Superman such a big deal in the 70s. Getting a guy to fly in a movie today is no big deal. Mm -hmm. We have a computer. In the early 90s, getting a guy flying around a rocket pack, that was a big deal. Took a couple days to set up. It's all composite shots and everything. That's a, that is, you know, it was impressive. And uh, I think, as by extension, still is. All right, Chris, uh, I'm going to ask you this first. What is the best part of the movie? What's the best thing about the movie? Ooh. Probably PV's little one-liners. I thought it was, yeah, I thought you would just say PV because yeah, it might just yeah. be PV is the answer. Yeah, Alan Alda, I think, should have gotten like the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor because he's <laughs> just, every just like his little like aloof like line. Yeah, the, it's he, just pure gold. His delivery is so it's so deadpan. It's deadpan and it's, it's aloof, sincere. but there's heart. There's exactly. so much heart to it. That's what makes it connect. That's so what makes well. it. He cares about Cliff mm-hmm. very much, mm-hmm. very much. Like, and what I love is we don't know what their relationship is. Yeah, I mean, we we assume it's just that they're friends. I mean, they're living together. together. They're clearly not dead. father and son. Yeah. Right. He calls him son, but in that kind of. But like, then he says yeah. buddy back. Right. Yeah. It's it's not like he's literally his son, but he obviously cares about him and feels he's clearly like, a father figure. Right. But he isn't. He isn't. Because he's a bit more of sure. an equal, but he's a father right. figure. Yeah, he's more equal it's than the, father yeah, figure. Yeah, it's, it's, he's it's definitely, so great. He's definitely like, Cliff doesn't think he needs to be looked out for, but Peavy's going to do it. Anyway. Yeah. And yeah. that's that's what makes that relationship spent, work so well. I just, I love the setup with the bubble gum so much. In the very yeah. beginning, it's like Cliff has bubble, has, he takes his chewed up gum and he puts it on the plane for good luck. And PB takes it off in the beginning. Not ruin the paint. Because he's not going to ruin it. He probably doesn't. He's like, ah, oh, luck. Rolls his eyes. And of course, that ends in disaster. So then so then he's like, oh, no. Put the gum on, put <laughs> on the, the, gum on on the, the rocket, rocket pack. pack. And it's it like, oh, that's the, pay, that's the payoff for it. Then you find out, no, the real payoff for it is the end of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> that's how he's he just, going to beat Neville Sinclair. Yeah. That's it. Neville Sinclair, such a good villain. Oh, he's fantastic. I love how it's like. I mean, we didn't say Errol Flynn. Yeah, but <laughs> wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Right. Timothy Dalton is just chewing scenery like and crazy, it's and it's fantastic. And I mean, it's he's a Nazi. It's, it's incredible. Yeah. yeah, it's just so much fun. It's just the whole thing with you know. At, at, so at one point, 
The Nazis are after Cliff. The mob is after Cliff, and the feds are after him. All in the span of like a day, right? <laughs> and that's like his first big play is pitting them against each other a bit. And you have that incredible shot where Eddie Valentine, the mo- the mob leader, is so he's good. Great, but he's like shooting at the Nazis with the, with the FBI guy. They <laughs> kind of look, look at each other. Like, eh. <laughs> yeah. Keep shooting Nazis. <laughs> go get him, kid. I'm like, that's a good line. Yeah, go get and him. It's funny because that's like that's one of the more sincere mm-hmm. lines yeah. in the film. And it's, it's, it's the mob the boss who was the bad guy the whole yep. film delivering it. It's great. Oh, gosh. Billy Campbell is such a great leading man. He's, he's so likable. And the Cliff Secor just, you know, it, it is such a formula, but it works so well here. He's, he's down and he's out of his luck. And he's just really a nice guy. I mean, yeah, the whole- but, but his first instinct for this rocket pack that he found is to make <laughs> money off of it. Yeah. Which is fair. You know, he's a had a major setback. And yeah. so he has that good hero's journey where he, he goes beyond that and becomes about the woman he loves and. You know, stopping the Nazis was kind of a side benefit of that. Right. You know, that's good. And it helps that he gets a free plane at the end to kind of Oh, sure. Cover and, and it's great that Howard it's, Hughes you know, is the one real person in here, too, yeah. right? And, and he's heroic in himself. And, and it's Terry O'Quinn from Lost. Yeah, it's Lost. Well, it's, it's the Back to the Future ending, right? You get the, you get the car you want. Yeah, yeah. It works out. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very similar hero's journey to Marty McFly it, in a lot of ways. It is kind of fun seeing some, like, like a lock from Lost and... um. That girl man, from man, I forget her name. From but. the office is a singer at the South Seas Club. Yeah, oh, yeah, you guys, Jan. Because I listen to Office Ladies, and she's on that sometimes too. The podcast. Yeah, office is more your thing. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not an expert. Yeah, I, remember, I remember like having not seen this movie for a few years. Like after the Oscar, I watched it. Go, hey, that's Jan. That's Jan. <laughs> and we didn't really bring this up, but so in the comic, Cliff's girlfriend is Betty, and it's inspired by Betty Page. And, and here you have, uh, you Jenny. have Jen, Jenny. And, but it's like still clearly inspired by that a bit. And yeah, she's, yeah. you know, uh, she's very good. <laughs> Jennifer Connelly's looks, very attractive. She looks good. Film. She looks very good in that very dress. A, a lot they're doing. Uh, maybe that's the one negative. There's some awkward uh, shots of awkward. her bosom. <laughs> <laughs> well, like clearly, they, like well, it pans down. There, you know, it's for a it laugh. Was, it was POV of that. I, weird yeah, thing. I know. Was that, that a real guy? Yeah. 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 With, yeah. like, the lip was, like, way <laughs> obviously out. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty good. Yeah, I'm sure it was a, that was a caricature of some producer or something. Maybe that was the real guy. I don't know. I'm not super up on my golden age of Hollywood yeah, yeah. history. I'm, I'm I'm sad to say. I do love the, what, Luthar. <laughs> He's just straight up, like, a Bond monster. Yeah, kind and of it's a, so funny because, again, no explanation why this guy looks like this. Well, and he, he's got like the Dick Tracy makeup going yes, on. Exactly. And, yeah, that's what we both said. You see that silhouette of him, and it feels very Dick Tracy yeah. for a moment. <laughs> Which is kind of funny. We've never seen that film, but everyone knows it's still characters. Yeah. yeah well we played that video like game this. on the nintendo yeah that's what did it <laughs> yeah. there were and there were rocketeer video games the nes one's not bad it's simple the super nintendo one's a bit rougher because like the first part of it is you're doing the kind of flying race circus thing and it's kind of awkward to control but hey maybe someday we'll get a uh, mm-hmm. a full-fledged rocketeer well, we flight that, simulating we that game. dark void game which is probably there's, about as close as there's a lot get. of things clearly inspired by it oh, sure. right mm-hmm. now we never got a Rocketeer ride, and I don't even really think there was ever too much of a serious thought of one. But there's still plenty of Rocketeer stuff in the parks. Still there today? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Some of it, and some of it not so much. Like, in, in the summer of 1991, the Rocketeer himself actually flew around the Chinese theater as part of the yeah, Sorcery so in cool. the Sky fireworks at the Disney MGM Studios. So which, cool. Yeah, I would, I would have loved to have seen that, and we'll try to find some video of that and, and share that. But also, in front of the Chinese theater, you can see the imprints of the boots for the Rocketeer, his name written there, and it also has like the blast, like scorch marks on that <laughs> tile, which is fantastic. 
And not too far from there, uh, over on Echo Lake, is PV's Polar Pipeline, which is a little kind of like icy stand that is just straight up like Rocketeer themed. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just flown under the radar, I guess, because it's still Rocketeer themed. It's still named after PV. I love it so much that PV has like a, a <laughs> yes, quote unquote PV. restaurant in a Disney park. And what's like the weird story of it? Like, he, he basically PV because he's such a good inventor invented like a literal pipeline to like Alaska something. to get the coldest drinks. <laughs> yeah. It's something goofy like that. Man, like, I don't want a Jock Lindsay bar. I want a PV bar. Oh, uh, but and what's great is that on the like left wall of this of this stand, there is a Rocketeer helmet and jetpack and there are props. Yeah. Yeah, and isn't uh, it the the mini Rocketeer too moving the popcorn? That's in Disneyland. Oh, okay. Disneyland. I think he's gone though. Is he? he gone? They, he's been gone lately. But uh, yeah, so the, so in Disneyland they have the popcorn movers. I was thinking it was there. Land has its own. Yeah, yeah and, the Tomorrow and Tomorrowland movie. had a Rocketeer one for a bit. Yeah. No, but this Petey's Polar Pipelines, when the park first opened, that was a Lakeside newsstand, which sold like souvenir like publications. Like you can buy. I don't know if you could buy a real Time magazine or like a fake Disney MGM Time <laughs> magazine, but it was stuff like that. But you can also go in the sci-fi dine-in restaurant, uh, and that has some props, too. It has another jetpack. It has a newspaper with a Who is the Rocketeer headline and a South Seas Club menu. Oh, that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And if you like the South Seas Club, if you go to Jock Lindsay's, which you, you brought up a little bit ago, Chris, mm-hmm. at Disney Springs, they have a South Seas Club coaster that you can get, which I have a couple of those things Ooh. saved up. But, and they well, also- the story is because there's a couple of, like, uh, cameo bar coasters and as it was explained to me by the bartender there when I went when it was relatively new is that well Jock forgot to buy coasters so he just stole some from other bars he went to as he flew around <laughs> the world cool. and just brought them back to the bar that's <laughs> what Mike's doing at his house that's true and because <laughs> all Jock, these coasters we're using <laughs> because Jock's a pilot and he has so much pilot memorabilia there he has some posters from Bigelow's Air Circus he's got a Ooh. banner and, and, and a poster there so, you know, maybe he did some flying around there, too. It, I mean, it is. I do like this idea that there's a Rocketeer Indiana Jones connected universe. Yes, yes they, yeah, and it makes together. sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You can also see Rocketeer props back in the uh, prop warehouse, which used to be the line for the Backlot Tour. And I used to love that because you had like Rocketeer props. You had stuff from dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. You randomly had some old like animatronics from World of Motion hanging the, uh, around. The statues the, of the Sanderson sisters was in there from the end of the focus uh, when they were frozen. The mm-hmm. kid's shoe from uh, Honey, I Blew Up the Kid. This one, I, I don't remember. Apparently, a jetpack was also on display in One Man's Dream for a time. I'm not oh, wow. entirely sure why. It's not like Walt one. Disney had anything to do with They always hey. swap stuff out. So. Sure. But the uh, what was really cool is the Bulldog Diner and one of Cliff Secord's planes were also like part of the outdoor props that you could see on the Backlot Tour for a while. You know how long those were there? Would we have seen them? I never remember. So it was before we really cared about the Rocketeer, okay. unfortunately. But we would have probably seen but it. We, we saw them at some point. Mm-hmm. Bulldog Diner especially is neat. That's a, like, it, there's an alternate universe where there's huge. a Bulldog Diner restaurant inside one of these <laughs> right. parks somewhere. And of course, the music is used quite a bit. It was used, I think, a lot of Disney fans would best know the Rocketeer score and associate it with the Epcot Fountain. That used to be that just got demolished recently uh, in the middle of Future World because the fountain would do these wonderful music shows every 15 minutes. And the Rocketeer one was the best one. Yeah, clearly. Because <laughs> it's the Rocketeer. Uh, but you can hear that song some other places. It's been used for Soren's cue. I don't know if it is right now because they, they use a lot of flying based music, right. obviously. So, of course, it would be in there. Also, I didn't even realize this, but Trader Sam's Grog Grotto also has a South Seas Club uh, menu. And that's, nice. the, that's the one in the Polynesian in Disney World. 
have to go check that out later. So there's like a, there's a good amount of and what's cool is some of the stuff is newer, like Raw Grotto and Jock Lindsay's. Like they're still yeah, throwing still in some some Rocketeer love. And, you well, know. you gotta think too. A lot of the you know newer Imagineers that are getting in there are Our in age, their thirties yeah. and all that. They, they grew up. They with like this the movie, too. yeah. So they're gonna maybe throw those kind of things in there. Mm-hmm. So obviously the the movie we have right now just drops little hints of a sequel, right? Because they have the plans for the Rocketeer, and it's that great thing with PB, like, trying to tell Cliff about it, but he's kissing. Cliff ain't listening. Yeah, he did, yeah. Cliff, oh, gosh. That Rocketeer's still in the... Is that Rocket's back still in the garage? Yeah. (laughs) Why? (laughs) That might be the best line. That line kills me. Uh, It got us, for Mm -hmm. sure. So, yeah, so they they originally hoped to make a trilogy, which obviously wasn't going to happen when the film wasn't a huge box office hit even though it eventually gained that cult following. Although, you know, like, what's what's neat here is Joe Johnston, the director, he would eventually move on to do uh, Captain America, the first Avenger for, for Disney. And he got that job because of the Rocketeer. He yeah. did that for them. And Very it was, much in the wheelhouse. Right. Yeah. It was, you know, period thing, uh, you know, kind of World War II era. Rocketeer's, like, right before that. But you love that movie. N- another kind of, like, you know, likable, scrappy hero. It makes a lot of sense. And there are some parallels between those two movies. So it's kind of a spiritual uh, sequel, right? But 2012, Disney actually started talking about doing, like, a, an actual honest-to-goodness sequel. Uh, and, and at that point, the creator of Saw, James Wan, was attached to it. And then in 2016, they, they talked about it again. It was going to be The Rocketeers. It's going to be set six years after the original, and it was going to star a black female pilot in the starring role. Which is nice, because we were, when we were watching that movie, at There's one point another, I was like... Another negative. A lack of diversity it is in an, 1930s yeah. Hollywood. It is almost sickeningly white. <laughs> it is... <laughs> It's, it's a bit rough sometimes there. But 1991, what are you going to do? And, but as of 2020, so uh, J.D. Dillard is now set to direct the sequel. And the idea now is that it's going to be a Disney Plus thing. There's been another draft written. And, and, you know, they're always talking about content for Disney Plus. Yeah, bring it. And, you know, and it, they have metrics now. They can see, oh, this is how many people are watching The Rockets here. Or are they going to be interested in the sequel? I mean, they just made a new Mighty Ducks thing, for goodness sake. So. Which, true, true. which is very good. Yeah, My I wife and I that. do enjoy it. So maybe this is going to happen. Maybe it's not. Like, just have Rocketeer on every night before you go to bed. Well, of course, Get those you metrics gotta, up. You got to mention the Rocketeer sequel they did make. And they did actually make one. They made a Disney Junior show. Which my kids very much enjoy. Yeah, we haven't watched it. Is it on Disney Plus? Um, It might be. It's on Disney Now. That's okay. Because they also, there's a, there's a decent... You know, Disney now has like those little mini games. Yeah, yeah. There's a decent Rocketeer game okay. on there. For the and what's cute is that Billy Campbell's back in there doing uh, voice work. Right? Yeah, no so, so, yeah, yeah. So, so, so the the girl's the main character. I forget all the, the names. And it's he's got she's got a bulldog. Yeah, she is a bulldog. Her her dad is voiced by um, Campbell, and then her grandfather is voiced by Frank Welker, actually. And I think now I'm gonna screw this up. It's either Cliff Secord was either his dad or his grandfather. So it, it literally is like the girl is like his great granddaughter or great great granddaughter. Okay. And she finds the rocket pack. Ooh. Um that they apparently rebuilt, I guess. And like it's like, hey, they set it up at the end of the That's first what they one. were setting up. They're setting right. up a Disney Junior show. <laughs> yes, yeah, yes. Thirty, years, 30 later. years later. And like it's it, but it's cool. Like like there's like a statue of the Rocketeer in the town. He's like this legendary figure from the That's town. That's great. And everyone yeah, remembers it. Cool. And you know, she's just stopping little petty crooks like a magician who's trying to steal something. It's like, it's like the PJ 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's Disney Jr. The stakes are going to be low. The mobs and Nazis are not involved this time. (laughs) I was hoping they might like use the music a little bit, but they don't even do that. Uh, You got to pay someone for that. You know, it's fun. I mean, it's the same jetpack. Like it's got the same design and everything. And she's got the helmet. And Mm -hmm. yeah, it's fun. That's almost all. I like. As neat as a sequel would be, and of course I'm going to watch it. I love Rocketeer. I don't need yeah, one. Yeah, you don't need it. You know, as much as Again, like... Perfect movie. As much as this one like le- leaves that seed for a sequel, to me, all that is is, oh, good, Cliff Secord is going to have more adventures. And there were comic books. Yes, and he talked about... He, uh, Bilson talked about Rocketeer that. Rocketeer goes to New York yeah. and stuff like that, yeah. Right, and so, you know, and I still have to read those, and, and I will, and I don't necessarily... It would be great if that was a movie. More than anything, I'd actually like to see a video game. That's what I really yeah, want, like a yeah, really yeah, high-end. Well, I mean, that, I almost feel like that's the way. I mean, you know, Billy Campbell, Jennifer Connelly, they're still around. They're still acting, but so they, don't, is, they uh, don't look like they did yeah, 30 years ago. Yeah, they're all, they're all still He active. was in Santa Claus 3. He is? Oh, jeez. Yeah. Why, why'd you watch Santa Claus 3 recently? <laughs> we, we, it was Christmas not that long ago. <laughs> well, you can watch better Christmas movies than Trust Santa me, Claus 3, did. The Escape It was part of the Claus. rotation. <laughs> Rocketeer saves Christmas. Ooh. There you go. There Give me go. that. Oh, because he's going to drive the sled. <laughs> <laughs> Rudolph's sick. <laughs> Get the Rocketeer. He what? pushes See, the car. with your rocket pack so bright. <laughs> Don't you push my sleigh tonight. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I need it. Uh, cause this year Santa Claus is going on a sled. He's going on a tank. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa! <laughs> just, just a little thing. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, this movie I mean, just makes me so happy. It, it's it, it's interesting to go back to this movie today, especially if you've never seen it, because I think in this this modern era of like you know the MCU and everything. Again, um, Billson talked about this. It, it he 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 said he said he doesn't compare it to like a superhero movie, and I agree with that. But as far as being a comic book movie, it feels remarkably modern, like for what it was. In like, terms you know, of the tone and um, like if, if it came out today as like an MCU adjacent thing, yeah, just like know, modernized, modern, with but the, like, like, but that movie, yeah, it fit right in. Yeah. I mean, it's a bit, it's a bit quippy. It's right. It's a bit winky at the audience. just in fun but ways. It's aware of itself in that way. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, but it's not obnoxious with it to yeah, the point no. where some of these movies almost can be. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's the pacing. It's the, acting, the pacing. It's so the good. characters. It, you know, again, that's, that's why Joe Johnson was such a good choice for Captain America. Uh, it, it just, that was the style. Like they figured it out in ninety one, but Joe, no one noticed. Joe Johnson himself is interesting. He started as a visual effects guy on like Star Wars, right, thing, right, right. And he's he's also did Jurassic Park three and uh, some ma- some other major kids movie that I'm forgetting about. But he's done some a lot of big things, so he's great. Cool. All right, guys. I think that we do the Rocketeer justice for its thirtieth anniversary. I, I hope we. I do. hope so. Did we do it justice to you. Yes, I'm very okay. happy. I love, yeah. <laughs> well, that's that's what matters. Most. Yeah, and I, I didn't yeah. even talk. You know, I have I got my Bigelow's Air Circus poster in here. I've got a Rocketeer uh, uh, tiki mug that was not a Disney one actually, but it's fantastic. Was that Mondo who made those? I think it was yeah, Mondo. Mondo. Great yeah, website. Sometimes I forget that Bigelow gets off in the movie. Like, yeah, I forget about that, and when it happens, I'm always like, oh yeah, that. Well, it's I, like, I don't was, know if he deserved that. He was literally bent in half. You yeah. see his foot by his head, cool, above his man. head. He endangered cool. all those spectators, AJ. There was trouble. He told them all yeah. to stay in their seats. Mm. He's a bit villainous. Well, I mean, you got the stakes, you know. I mean, if they off the uh, the mobster, but that's a mobster. He got his due diligence by his gas being exploded twice. It's not a cheap just for shock value that because he uses it a lot to tell people things are serious, right? 
it that in the when they're hiding out in the bulldog, they tell him uh, Bigelow got killed, and then he's like, "All right, I'm yeah. calling the feds." You're right. That then is when he sees like... Jenny, he's like, "Yeah, Bigelow was killed. This is serious." And she's like, "Oh, okay." So, yeah, you're right. You're right. Haha. It is the moment. It's good stuff. I'm glad it's, he died. It's a well written <laughs> film. How about that? Good job there. It's Bill. like they knew what they were doing. Good job, yeah. Bill. Yeah. Uh, all right. So that was this month. That was a big episode. I but next month is going to be an anniversary, isn't it? We're two turning two. Years. The terrible twos two. will begin. Uh, we're going to uh, be the twos so are fine. Many. The threes are the problem. No, twos with the boy are tough. The boy. The girls are fine at two. <laughs> the boy. Ooh. So uh, it's technically my month, but we talked a while about doing a special episode for Disney Quest. Yes. So I. I'll kind of take point on it, I think. I think we kind of eat, but we all kind of take sections of... We're all going to help out on this one. We're going to do this one big. Because we love Disney Quest. And And it it is very quintessential 90s Disney. And quintessential Minotti's at that time. Yes, it's a lot. It's like the most 90s thing. It's it's very much us. We love this place. We spent a lot of time in there. So I want to do this one up uh, pretty good, too. Speaking of, just real quick, quick side side note. Did you see they announced some of the Disney Wish stuff today for the new... Yes, line. I didn't get to look in depth into they it. They have like this neat little like simulator for the rides in the parks. And it looks just really? like um that jungle cruise ride. Oh god. Oh, like uh, you sit in like a little vehicle looking at like a screen. It just made me think of that. I, I saw it's gonna have some kind of an Avengers restaurant thing. Yeah. Yeah, it looks neat. Where's the Rocketeer restaurant? Where's my Some- South Seas Club? Where's my Bulldog Cafe? <laughs> Someday, um, Mike Zors. All right. Well, I I'm like just tempted to keep talking about it, but it's pretty late. Yep, it's late. So we can yeah, wrap I've this up. All right, Ren. Well, thank you so much for listening to the show. As always, uh, you can find more of the podcast at 90sdisney.com, 90sdisney.com, where you can get links to subscribe to the show on the podcast service of your choice. Check out past episodes. Subscribe for future episodes. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Um, And uh, if you want to email the show, uh, send an email to 90sdisneypodcast at gmail.com. If you have... Memories of the Rocketeer. If you have memories of Disney Quest, let us know because we'd love to hear about it and bring them on. Talk about it on the show. Yeah, I should. Yes. I, my, my friend one time, he like his his mom had like Rocketeer trading cards for when the film came out, and he gave them to me for my birthday one time. Whoa, that's pretty good. Do you oh. cherish them? Oh yeah. Are they under your pillow? <laughs> <laughs> Gotta keep me safe. I put them, I put them on my car like dash gambit. shield and kiss it. My finger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bring it back with your nightly chapstick. But then later the mob finds it, and now they know yeah. to go up the right. Yeah. So. Let's all put gum on our cars. All right, <laughs> gonna ruin the paint. My paint's already ruined. All right, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next time right here on Nineties Disney. Goodbye. Take care. Bye. Bye.